Hello, everybody. Chris and Tim back with you for episode 32 of Leading by the Book. And perhaps I introduced you wrong. Maybe I should call you Tim Bitcoin Barrett. (laughs) No, no, you know, I'm just out recruiting friends. So in the last week or two, I have purchased two, I don't even know if I want to call them assets. I've made two purchases, uh, driven you know, largely by, by by things from friends. And they, they were not things I would look at as investments, but more of, I'm going to gamble a little bit, and this will be something fun to talk about with my buddies. Everybody, everybody likes to gamble a little bit. A, a little bit. And now, to be fair, you and I were talking earlier, and you know, the amount of money that you and I gamble with is an incredibly small portion of our respective capital, but... But, but it is fun. All right, I, I, I got to pause right here, okay? We, we're on video chat, and so, so that we can see each other when, when we're talking. I had a different window open because Tim and I were looking at some, some charts, and I went back to the video window, and I am greeted front and center with Tim <laughs> holding a knife and looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I i fidget with things oh you know it was a it was a letter opener on my desk at the office but since i haven't been in the office it's been this pocket knife that thing is less letter opener and more sword <laughs> how how it long is, is that thing it's it's really big the the letter it is opener. pretty large i don't have a i don't have a it's about the size of my hand no 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 the letter opener at the office oh well, it was bigger before somebody broke the handle. It's at least a foot, right? It might be close. It's not maybe not quite a maybe not quite a foot. Maybe eight or nine inches. It's it's significant. Uh, but out of curiosity, of all the things you could fidget with, why are you on video chat with me fidgeting with a knife? Um, well, I use these objects to clean my fingernails. Okay. You don't have a better tool than a knife. Mm-mm. Do you? I, uh, yeah, I, I, I do actually. Um, I think I saw it the other day on one of the. It might have been on one of these sites, um, like a not like a GoFundMe thing, but um, you know, one of those sites where they are uh, raising money for new inventions, like Indiegogo. Mm-hmm. I think is one of them. And mm-hmm. I saw somebody on there the other day, and they had a product they called. A fingernail clipper. So yeah, that, that's that's what I use. <laughs> this wait, I'm so confused. This is some upstart, or you're? I'm you're making really a joke that I use a fingernail clipper to clip oh. my fingernails. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> as you, yeah, as I, you slowly clip the knife away. <laughs> I'll put that down now. Okay. All right. Well, n- nonetheless, Mr. Bitcoin, uh, you've now brought me into the tribe of Bitcoin yep. holders. What is it you like about Bitcoin? Well, I think, I think, um, I think it's, I think it's interesting. I think uh, gold historically uh, has been, you know, sort of a, a vote of no confidence or a lack of trust in in um, whatever dominant monetary regime there is. And, and I think Bitcoin uh, more modernly fits that, especially for like poorer people, uh, lower demographics. Uh, one, because it's, it's easier to get your hands on, right? Gold's expensive, it's bulky. How do I know if it's real? What I just bought. I think that... Um, Bitcoin is much easier to uh, re-denominate small amounts into, you know, enough to buy a a quart of milk uh, or overseas it maybe a liter. And you know, as the world sort of gets a bit more chaotic, I think I think it makes sense as a play. And currently, the um, market capitalization of Bitcoin is like 180 billion. I think that's about right. And uh, the market cap of, of gold is uh, 
you know, somewhere in the seven to nine trillion range. So there's there's a bit of a run uh, expected and possible. Um, just as things like you know, you I don't know if you saw the news in Hong Kong, but like China's getting extremely aggressive with yep. Hong Kong, and um, uh, you know, I think there's a possibility that you may begin to see. Um, now, Hong Kong's probably a bad, bad example because their currency is pegged to the U.S. dollar. But, you know, in an effort to kind of fight off uh, a runaway inflationary currency, you know, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to buy gold. I'm going to buy Bitcoin. I'm going to um, abandon my currency, uh, that my home currency. Well, you saw that in Venezuela. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that happened in Venezuela. Um, and I think that trend more frequently in the coming years. And I think if I'm wrong, that the upside potential is so great, that it doesn't matter. Well, so in a big part of the upside potential is the having. Why do you explain the having and why the most recent event that we had is significant? So what the having does is every 210,000 blocks uh, uh, that are mined, the reward that, that people get is um, uh, for, for doing the mining, basically verifying the transactions, is cut in half. And so the, the cost to, um, to mine Bitcoin just went from an average of 5,600 uh, and it doubled. So uh, that's why you're seeing some uh, pricing pressure rise. No, just from a technical perspective, there's some resistance at ten thousand dollars. But I think if it breaks through ten thousand dollars, then it tests twelve, and it breaks through twelve, it's going to test fourteen. And if it can break through fourteen, we're going to see it look to try to test twenty, um, which then it starts to become profitable again. Uh, for the miners, which means they don't, they don't hold as much Bitcoin, they're they're able to sell it, uh, and it's it's one of those things where it's extremely volatile. It's starting to get more attention. It's starting to get allocation in um, very large institutional investors' portfolio. Uh, one of the most recent Paul Tudor Jones, uh, very prominent um, fund manager. Um, has two percent of his fund that he's now allocated to it. Uh, you know, it's it, two hundred billion dollars. Uh, I'm sorry, at uh, one hundred eighty billion dollar market cap, it doesn't take many of those to begin to say, you know, I'd like to get some exposure to this to really push the price up. Well, it's asymmetric risk, like we've talked about. Yeah, There's... and his. Yeah, no, that's that's for sure. So, you know, it's one of those things where, like, I have a minuscule amount of uh, money in it. Uh, you know, it's literally a couple thousand bucks. It's not, it's not, it's not much, but but it's fun to watch. I think there's a good story behind it, and I think there's good reason to believe that the upside potential is worth the downside risk of you know, a couple grand for me, it's a couple grand. It's, and I, and I think everybody it's, um, you know, it's, 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 it's such an interesting story. Uh, it could go to zero for sure. So you put so little in it that if it goes to zero, you're not that worried about it and it could go to a million dollars. Uh, and if it goes to a million dollars, you want to have enough in it to where it's meaningful. But I think that that risk reward uh, is is so high that it almost doesn't make sense not to have, you know, have a little bit, put 10 bucks in. Well, we've seen valuation, and frankly, there's actually not a lot of valuation models out there for it, but, you know, what, what you shared with me and what seems to be the most reasonably put together valuation model is showing valuations in the 280,000 to 500,000 range. For Bitcoin, mm -hmm. you know, it's sitting right now at ninety four sixty nine, and with a hundred seventy four billion dollar market cap, what you're talking about throwing throwing a few thousand dollars at that for the potential of a massive return in that ballpark is is certainly the asymmetric risk that I think we all chase. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially with, 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 we'll call it the gambling money. Everybody's got to have a gambling money. It kind of makes it interesting. <laughs> that's, that's my gambling money. You know, the weeks that I hate are the weeks where my gambling money does better than my managed money. You hate those weeks? Well, because I'm like, huh, should I maybe start, you know, t- taking this gambling account and building it out a little bit more? And But I think the important thing is that it always stays that. It doesn't, it doesn't ever become the primary source of your wealth creation. Right. A proper gambler takes some off the table. And so I think you, you set parameters around what, what is my, how, how do I, how do I balance a portfolio? Um, you, you can create a portfolio, uh, out of just about anything, as long as they move in different directions and are uncorrelated and there's a positive risk reward. Um, so, you know, for me, I look at, I look at cash, gold, Bitcoin, as like one type of uh, portfolio and, and really moving within certain elements and making the Bitcoin earn its way into my desired allocation in that, you know, that three asset portfolio. And, you know, my goal really is as it gets out of whack, if Bitcoin really does what um, I think it can do and what, you know, some of some of these other folks think think it can do, then I'd take some off the table and reallocate toward gold and cash, gold and silver yeah. and cash, because um, they're they're basically those are those are hard assets. They don't earn a return. It's just it's somewhat speculative trade. Do you have any gambling funds dedicated to equities right now? No, really, I don't really like equities. I have thought about, I mean, we were just talking about, uh, we were just talking about um, uh, my, my most recent interest in uh, selling options uh, because of a conversation I had with my dad. My dad's a newfound investor and... Uh, well, and he's going he, uh, right into it. Oh, yeah. And uh, um, he... Um, for some reason, I don't know what what possessed him, but he he bought an option on uh, Royal Caribbean, and you know it went up, and he sold it. And I thought when he was describing it to me that he was selling covered calls, and I was like, "Wow, that's a very sophisticated strategy uh, that you've discovered already. That's interesting." I, I and I told him I like that strategy, but I don't love Royal Caribbean, uh, just with where we're at you know, in this weird pandemic thing, who, who knows if they're going to be in business. And, um, uh, so anyway, I started, I started looking into that again. Um, that, that interests me somewhat selling, selling, uh, covered options. I do, I do, I guess I do have some gambling money. Um, uh, got I like to buy, uh, Dividend aristocrats, long-term dividend-paying stocks. How do you feel about rates? Um, you know, REITs were, were something that interested me when everything first started crashing. But most of my, I've got a lot of private real estate exposure, so I don't really, I don't really need additional real estate exposure. Uh, but REITs are interesting because when when um, they they you know, the private real estate markets move slower, right? It's less liquid, so liquidity provides you the ability to buy and sell and really distort a market really quickly, uh, really react to current news. And so I thought I thought there could be opportunities to in the public REITs. When in um, you know a couple months ago when everything hit the fan, but never really got around to to looking into it. That's one of the things that that or I should say that was the other purely speculative uh, purchase that I made last week. I I bought a REIT, and admittedly, a lot of these REITs have rebounded off of the lows that they had. The REITs got hit almost disproportionately hard when mm-hmm. things went south, but 
when you look at, first of all, with the REITs, you know, I, I think you really have to look at the specific exposure to different sectors. You know, a REIT that's heavily exposed to the retail sector right now, a little bit tougher than, than, than some of the others. Um, office space is another one that's kind of kind of tough right now, especially given, given what we talked about last week on the show. But, you know, for some of these, with, with the prices where they are, it's, it's, it's definitely a yield play. You're picking up, you're picking up potentially a, a lot of yield very cheap, but um, there, there's also certainly an appreciation play. And typically, REITs are very stable from a price point. There's not a lot of shifting in the prices, and you're, you're effectively buying the yield when you do it. So now the fact that you can actually get the appreciation and the yield, you know, to me, it's worth taking a little bit of a gamble on. Hmm. No, that, that was what, what my thought process was in that. But when you're looking at investments, what, what's your criteria? Do you, do you have a standard system or standard procedure that you go, to th- go through whenever you're looking at something? Or do you do every single one on a one-off basis? Well, it depends on what it is. So most, most things I'm, I'm looking for uh, I'm, is value add of some sort. So I'm going to buy it. I'm going to do something to it that's going to cause the value to rise uh, or the rents to rise, the income associated with it, um, with maybe the business to rise. And then, um, you know, you look to recapitalize it or sell it. Uh, that's the vast majority of what I do. Everything else ends up just being a speculation. Um, you know, most everything I do is, is, is fairly illiquid. And so I'm always looking for various liquidity strategies to preserve and or grow, you know, liquid capital. And, um, so I, and then, and then of course I grab my gambling money. I screw around with a lot of different stuff, mostly just to educate myself. Yeah. I found that on the equity side, which is where I, where I play a lot of the time, just having a standard checklist that I go through for every single, single stock that I'm looking at has really helped simplify the process. Um, it, it's taken the speculation, even, even with the money I'm speculating with, it's taken kind of the speculative nature away from it. And so... I've got my checklist in terms of things that I look at on the financials. So with financials, I'm going to calc out um, owner's earnings, for instance. I'm going to look at the balance sheet. I'm going to look at, at debt loads relative to cash and, and other liabilities. I'm going to look at, at uh, different cash flow growth metrics over, over the past few years and figure out if they have a stable return. I'm going to look at the management team. I'm going to figure out if I understand the product. Um, then I'm going to figure out now post-COVID, what do I think this product looks like? And then once I've done that, then I've, I've got two or three standard equations that I run the numbers through. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to calc out my margin of safety. I'm going to look at my payback and, and I'm going to look at my ROIC. And if those numbers give me a thumbs up, or at least two of the three give me a thumbs up and I can justify the other one, then and only then do I, do I really make a move. So it's kind of like if it's not a hell yes, it's a no. But I have found that simplifying that process has made things um, a lot less stressful. It's made it a lot easier, and uh, it's actually made things a lot more successful, too. Just having a system, and I think it's probably true for anything in life. The more systems you have for your life, the more repetition that you have and the more things are structured, the easier it, it makes your life. And a lot of people look at that and feel like they're being suffocated by that. But I actually think it's kind of freedom. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think especially going into investment decisions because it gets so emotional, having some anchoring to why you're taking a certain position, uh, you know, whether that be, you know, an apartment building I'm buying or a, you know, a car wash that we're gonna buy, uh, or uh, whether that be, um, um, you know, some dividend stock that I'm looking at. There's there's usually some reason to say. Uh, you know, looking at this historically, this is where I think this should be. And, and that provides you an anchoring because if you don't have an anchoring to what you think the value should be, it's really easy, I think, to knock you off, uh, off the horse of holding, holding that asset. That's why I love margin of safety investing so much because effectively Mm -hmm. you're, you're trying to calc out of the future what the value of the future earnings is. And then with whatever your desired margin of safety and your acceptable return is, 
you are you're coming up with a price that is effectively asymmetric risk in the sense that you're getting something very, very cheap, probably not going to go down, good chance it goes up dramatically. Um, you know, I'm going to get a deal on it. So that that's why I think, you know, taking the time to figure out what you think something is worth and then making sure that you've got an effective discount on it is so important. Yeah, that's right. And even like, even when I buy an apartment building, I do the same thing. You know, I, I, I look at the building and I say, okay, these rents are um, $1,000. And I know if I did this, this, and this to it, they'd be $1,500. I know that from experience, I should, my expenses to run this building should be that. And that gives me, you know, a net operating in- income uh, or, you know, an unlevered cash flow number. And I know the market cap rate should be this and so the terminal value of the asset when i'm done with my business plan should be should be some number and as long as that delta between what i'm buying it for the capital expenditures that i have to put into it and the um and what i'm going to be able to sell it for or or have a terminal value in order to recapitalize it to return capital to myself and and my investors then, then it's a win. That also inherently provides a little bit of a hedge because let's say, you know, same example, rents are $1,000 at this building, but I know they should be $1,500. Well, let's say during the holding period, rents actually declined by 30%, which doesn't happen. Um, at least it's never happened to me. Um, you know, automatically, we bought a building that rented for a thousand dollars. It was supposed to be fifteen hundred dollars, but now you're back to a thousand dollars. So you're a little bit hedged on the income side from that perspective. And then, you know, let's say the market goes against you and the cap rate moves in a market uh, substantially. Well, it's gonna it's gonna eat up your profits, but you know, hopefully you're not not gonna lose money in that process, as opposed to like I just there's a, a lot of there's a lot of investors and I guess I'm just I just am mistrustful of uh, the old Mr. Market to begin with uh, but there's a lot of investors that just buy for exposure to different different assets they buy apartments because they think apartments are going to go up and they don't really have much of an investment thesis but they got money <laughs> yep. And uh, the, those are uh, it's an it's an unhedged position, and you you better be right about the future. Something you jotted down that you wanted to talk through today was lessons that we've learned investing. What sticks out to you in terms of th- things that have really had a big impact on you? Um, you know, I know there's there's been. Uh, there's been times when I've, I've looked at deals and uh, afraid of, of losing a deal, you know, you underwrite it more aggressively than, than you would. I think one of the biggest lessons I've learned is you, you got to wait for, you got to wait for, you got to be disciplined in your, in your approach. Um, so I remember before, before the last downturn, there was, uh, you know, I wanted to invest in real estate. And so I found this group and uh, they, you know, you sit down with them and they go through, you know, how much cash do you have? What do you have in your 401k? How much credit card availability do you have? All these things, right? Teeing you up to be levered to the hilt uh, on real estate. And uh, they start sending me deals and he calls me up and he's like, all right, here's, here's, here's this deal. I uh, forget how much it even was at the time, but first thing I did, I sat down and kind of ran a perform on it on a spreadsheet, and and I realized, wait a minute, I'm gonna I'm gonna lose a few hundred dollars a month. This is not the type of deal I'm looking for, and so I called the guy up and I, was, I just said, you know, I'm just not gonna I'm not gonna be able to do this one. It you know doesn't cash flow, and. Uh, he got really upset at me. He's like, man, I could, I'm wasting my time, sent this to you. I could have had it sold already. 
I can't be sending deals to you if you're not going to pull the trigger and trust me on them and blah, 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 blah. And I felt about, about as, as big as a snail. And, um, you know, at the time, and, and this was before everything crashed. And, you know, but that was one of the fortunate things that I did was, was I had some estimation of what's my cash flow going to be. And I had some semblance of an idea of, you know, what's the ultimate valuation going to be. And that helped me say no in that time. And I, and I was always, I was afraid of missing the deal, but fortunately it worked. And, and now I say, you know, you buy money machines, not dreams of riches. And I think that, 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 um, uh, that that's critical. Uh, to to investing success. So you started really investing right around the downturn, though, correct? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, when the market when the market crashed, I was I was able to actually recognize, oh, all these opportunities that I've been looking for, they're now everywhere. And uh, when when that happened, I basically took everything I had. And started buying houses, and um, uh, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't flipping them. I've, I've always been pretty conservative, um, and so, sorry, I had to plug my computer in. I've always been pretty conservative, and I wasn't flipping them. Uh, I was renting them out, but I could rent a house out and get, you know, a 12 percent return, unlevered, no, no debt, just on the, on the cash flows from the rents, and. Um, uh, you know, I was happy to buy that all day long. And I knew, I knew myself, I knew, okay, I'm, uh, we were buying these things super cheap. You know, at least I thought they were super cheap. You know, we we're buying houses for 80, a hundred grand. And I knew, okay, even if the market gets even worse, if this goes to 40, $50,000 for this house, what am I going to do? Am I going to panic? Am I going to sell uh, uh, into fear? And I knew the answer was no. I'm going to buy another one and another one and another one. And, um, uh, you know, so yeah. And then I kind of just grew from there. Real estate is very capital intensive business. So you very, very quickly exhaust your own capital and you start helping other people invest. And, uh, so that's, that's how I got started before because, that I worked at a bank. Well, because of the timing of that though, are there, I guess, what are the advantages of, starting investing at that time but i mean there also have to be disadvantages too so in terms of you look you look at the last last 12 years we've had well not 12 years but call it 10 years we've had about a 10 year bull market here and let, let's say you started investing 10 years ago instead of 12 years ago over the course of history you know with just basic economic cycles you know we're really due for some semblance of a pullback every 5 maybe 6 years we had arguably the best bull market in history. And so I, I do wonder if for a lot of folks that, that were now into this for eight or nine years of bull market, and that that's the only time they'd been investing, there have to be some things about risk, about managing downturns that you just haven't learned. And then pretty soon, because they've been doing it for so long, they're entrenched in this, this mindset. And you know something that we're having now is probably very hard to navigate versus people that are more seasoned and have seen either the last financial crisis or maybe even complete economic cycles before that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I think one of the things it's funny, even, um, even, uh, even people that are just a few years younger than me, uh, missed the whole experience of the downturn. Right, because they were still in college, maybe, mm -hmm. uh, or whatever they were doing during life at that time. But they don't, they don't have that perspective of how bad things can get, and so it works for me and against me. Right, so I'm, I'm generally very conservative uh, because I've seen how bad things can get. Uh, but at the same time. I'm very conservative. And so I miss a lot of opportunities uh, where, you know, I look back and I say, you know, like when, when the market crashed, there were deals everywhere, everywhere. 
And, you know, I'd, I was working with a, a broker and he'd send me, they were all on the market. He'd send me a few listings and, uh, uh, you know, I'd look at them, uh, try to figure out where they in the neighborhood I wanted them to be at. A couple of days later, I'd, you know, have them show me the houses. And then a couple of days later, I'd put a Excel spreadsheet, pro forma together on it. And, you know, cause I had this, I know it sounds silly, but I had a thesis around it. And then, well, hold uh, on, hold on. Why, why, why is that silly? Uh, well, I, I, I just think I overcomplicated uh, investing. I overcomplicate things in general, but I overcomplicated uh, investing in house. So, but to me, that sounds like you made sure that you knew what you were and what you weren't, and that you had a set of principles that you adhered to. And I think that's what keeps you from getting in trouble. No, that's right. Yeah, it is. And so, so all right. So I'll tell you what it was. So, so basically, my my and the reason we sold them all. My thesis was, uh, I can buy this house and I can rent it for a thousand dollars a month to somebody. Eventually, someone is going to do the math, and they're going to say, "I can rent this house for a thousand dollars a month, or I can buy it and my mortgage is going to be five hundred dollars a month." Better, uh, I'd be better to buy the house. And then you know, same same thing. Eventually, someone says. I can rent this house for a thousand dollars a month, or I can buy it for six hundred dollars a month, right? And there's equivalent values as those mortgage payments rise. And my thesis was that eventually rents and mortgages should be about equal. Uh, and in fact, there's additional benefits to owning. So, so there's there's argument to say that some rents uh, or some mortgages could ex- even exceed rents. But nonetheless, that was my trigger. So I knew I knew when I wanted to get in. Double-digit cash on cash return, no debt. And I knew when I wanted to get out. I want to get out when rents and mortgages equal about the same thing. And so what I did was I just, I ran a mortgage, I, I ran a mortgage payment. Uh, and I said, how much does this, how much, how much of a mortgage could this house afford? That's my, that's my exit value. When this house has a mortgage of this number, then I know my thesis has played out. So basically you bought them at the equivalent of... A five hundred dollar mortgage, even though you didn't carry debt on them, you rented them out for you know what whatever it was. In this case, it was you know, twice that. Once yeah. the once the mortgage value, and then you just set the mortgage value equal to two x the mortgage value that you bought it for, or whatever. And now yeah. you've got an adjusted price. Yeah, it's a little bit more complicated than this, but you could say I bought the house for a hundred thousand dollars. I knew that carrying a hundred thousand dollar mortgage would would cost about five hundred dollars a month. Uh, and I knew that that house could support a mortgage at the that rent number could could support a replacement mortgage of around two hundred thousand dollars total value. Uh, and so I just calced that on on every house. What's what's this rent? What's the equivalent? What's the equivalent mortgage that this this could afford? And then I backed into what does that mean? My exit value is, and that's what I did. Were these homes that already had renters in them, and how did you approach modeling in your vacancy? No, no, they weren't. Um, most va- most of that is is readily available. Um, market vacancy numbers, um, uh, so you know, different research reports and things of that sort will will tell you what the occupancy rate is uh, in a market. But did you model that in? Yeah, yeah. So I modeled in a vacancy number. I modeled in, you know, carrying costs of, uh, you know, maintenance and property taxes and insurance. And there's not a ton of expenses in, in renting a house out. Um, you know, and then, of course, there's unexpected stuff. So you want to make sure you're, you know, pretty, pretty flush with cash to take care of those things. But it worked out well. It worked out well. And then I basically parlayed that into investing in apartment buildings, um, doing the same thing. Now, I wasn't modeling that someone was going to buy the apartment building unit, uh, but I modeled in, I know rents are this, uh, I know rents should be that, and I know if that's the case, then the cash flow from the property is going to be this number, and I know that people will pay me this much for that cash flow, which means my terminal value is this number. And so 
that's most of what I do now um, on the value add side. Uh, you know, and we'll work on handful of handful of projects at a time. Are you doing any single family right now? No, although I am somewhat tempted uh, to uh, look at secondary, not secondary, that's not the right terms, second home markets uh, for because uh, I think with Airbnb uh, and the, the stress that uh, those owners have gone through, if you're leveraged in any way, and now all of a sudden this global pandemic comes along, uh, that is that can put some stress on the owner to cover the cash flows. They may have they may be pressed to sell those assets right now, and and I think that uh, in general we never got to a point. Um, so that's why I like those markets. But then housing in general, I think that we never we never we're, we're still we're not building enough homes. Uh, even still. And a lot of the homes that we do have are not in the right areas. Um, you know, the, the, the baby boomer generation, their homes are not necessarily in the right areas where the millennials want to live. The millennials, we'll see if this changes after this pandemic, but the millennials want to live in, you know, more, more urban settings. They've liked cities, uh, but they also value lifestyle more than McMansion. Uh, you know, boomers, you know, um, and, and, and it seems like you can almost mark generation, generational changes. In the run-up to 08, the trend really was like the bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger house, farther and farther and farther and farther and farther away from the center of town. Um, and it seems millennials are choosing opposite. They're choosing smaller uh, houses uh, in uh, cooler areas with more going on. Uh, and they're choosing lifestyle, which is sort of the same. But like you're seeing things like, you know, Denver take off. Uh, you're seeing things uh, like, um, uh, you know, Austin take off. You know, these are generally secondary, tertiary markets, um, uh, but but provide Nashville take off, but provide a really great lifestyle uh, in terms of affordability, cool factor um, to amenities, rather than the big master plans of of yesteryear, where. Um, uh, you know, you're building a big clubhouse. Uh, things are things are things are changing a, a little bit. So, so I like that story. Housing, especially when you think about housing and housing in the right location, and then the temporary. What I believe is temporary pressure that home uh, Airbnb owners may be feeling pressure on. I think that might pr provide a short-term opportunity. But I think you're you're right about the lifestyle choice. You know, I, I saw this firsthand in Chicago, which I realize Chicago's a major market, but Chicago's also a, a secondary market at the same time. But with Chicago, you've got miserable traffic. You see all the people with families living 45 minutes an hour outside of the city. They've got a miserable commute. But the city itself is actually very affordable. And before kids and my wife and I lived in Chicago, we, you know, we had, we had a lot of different opportunities for where to live, and we ended up living in a very, very tiny apartment. Um, but it was a tiny apartment in one of these high-end buildings where you've got several floors of amenities. You had a gym bigger than than an LA Fitness in the building. You had a covered, heated dog walk, so you'd have to take your dog outside in the winter. And oh, by the way, you're an elevator or a elevator right away from thousands of restaurants and bars, and so. Taking that over, over you know, an hour commute, you know, in in rain and wind and snow and out in the suburbs, yeah, I, I think definitely, especially for people without kids, they're they're choosing those markets. But one thing you talk a lot about is is the use of leverage. And w would you buy anything with leverage right now, at least in the single family space? Um, 
let me qualify this because there's a there's a broad range of of people that might be listening to this. I would say, would I use leverage to buy my own house? Yes. Under the circumstances of my mortgage is less than I could rent this for. Uh, and under the circumstances of I can comfortably afford the mortgage. So I'm not, I'm not overextending myself uh, to get that house that I'm afraid I'll never be able to afford um, and, and putting myself in an uncomfortable position. Uh, I'm hedged, hopefully, by the fact that if I do get in a bind, maybe I lose my job or something, I could rent the house uh, out or something. I don't know. Uh, so it gives you another, another potential exit opportunity. I have a very difficult time. So there's, so there's one, there's one scenario. I have a very difficult time, uh, uh, thinking that it's a good idea to borrow money, uh, for, uh, a house right now again unless it cash flows want to be a landlord uh, if it's an investment um, you got to be certain that it cash flows and I think that I mean that's one of the so I, I always ask people two questions when they talk to me about wanting to uh, invest in real estate and specifically buying a house uh, first first question I say is does it cash flow because cash flow covers a multitude of sins. Uh, if, if you have a house and it's just breaking even and the air conditioner goes out, you're reaching into your own pocket instead of the reserves that the property is built up to pay for that. And that's a painful experience. And you can't do that for very long. Um, you're hoping that the property appreciates for you to actually make any money. So I prefer cash flow if you're going to borrow money. Uh, and if, and if you're going to buy a single family home, I, I, uh, uh, it, it is, there are limitations on how much you can borrow, uh, for single family assets. Uh, when, when, when you're getting the loan, they're underwriting you, the individual. So if your income can't support it, uh, then you're not going to get the loan. There's also limitations. I think you can have, oh, it's been so long. I think you can have four single family mortgages before you're basically capped out uh, of, of having too many, too many loans. And then that assumes that your personal income can support that. Now, I prefer uh, multifamily and commercial property and specifically where I can get uh, uh, agency, um, meaning Fannie, Freddie, uh, non-recourse debt. What that means is my investment is at risk, but not, not my personal assets. So if, if something changes in the market and it goes against me, uh, then there's not, there's not issues to, to deal with. When I worked at the bank, I saw... You know, I started a week before Lehman Brothers failed, and I saw a lot of what can go wrong, and I really was able to sort of categorize in my mind, uh, these were very wealthy clients, and, and they fit into three different categories. The first were um, really the, the, the buyers where they used all their own money, um, they signed recourse debt. And when the market crashed, they had a lot of problems because the banks were coming after, were coming after their loans. Banks will usually get more aggressive if you sign recourse debt. So you're, you're inherently a bit more conservative if you have non-recourse debt, just from the debt underwriting perspective. Uh, those guys had, they weren't able to buy through the whole cycle. The second balance sheet were um, large uh, investment uh, syndicators. I liked their I liked their strategy, their balance sheet. They made money when their investors made money. They had lots of liquid assets on their balance sheet. Uh, they had lots of non-recourse debt. 
when the market turns, if they have a building that has a problem, they might lose that investment, but that's as far as it's going to go. The, the bank can't come after their personal assets. And so they have asymmetric risk from that perspective. They get the benefit of the debt without the, um, the, um, the detriment, uh, probably not the right term, but at any rate of the debt. Uh, and those guys were generally uh, substantially wealthier uh, than, than the first group, although the first group was fairly wealthy too. And then uh, the last balance sheet were really like the REITs and the funds. And I worked for a very, very large bank. Uh, they had a good business plan too, but they made all their money on fees. And I just didn't like that. I liked being aligned uh, with my investors where I made money when they made money. And um, so I've tried to model a lot of what I do, most of what I do around that middle balance sheet. Now it's taken me some time to get there. And so um, uh, at any rate, borrowing, I think borrowing non-recourse debt for a real estate investment opportunity can be prudent and you do have asymmetric risk uh, in that, you know, you get the upside of it. Uh, and, and really, because the banks are more conservative, you, you end up with less problems. How does somebody that's new to this go about borrowing non-recourse debt, though? That that seems like something where there's more of a track record needed to do it. You do need a track record. You can partner with somebody um, that has a track record. Um, you know, that's kind of what I did to to get started. And um, uh, you can, um, you know, and then of course, if you've got a balance sheet sufficient enough. Uh, Banks are clamoring, clamoring for your business anyway. Um, you know, it's 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 doable. Uh, but but you're right, you're right. It is a is it is a bit more of a, I guess, advanced uh, strategy. But on the REIT side, I actually think REITs probably make sense for a lot of people, especially like I said earlier, with where some of the yield was at. Uh, but mm-hmm. for you, is is the fee the big uh, limiting factor there? No, I don't. I don't so much mind the fees. Uh, actually, as a as a REIT investor, um, I didn't I, because so so many of the fees. So the, the the REITs that you look at when you look at public market REITs, um, they're the the fees are the fees are gone, and they're they're not gone, but like they're they're more they're more reasonable. Um, uh, it's it's when you when you launch these things that there's a there's a lot in there. Um, the, the thing I don't necessarily love about the REITs is there's no, I can't do anything to the business, at least not at my scale. I suppose if you had substantially more money than I do, you could do something about it, but the junior probably not listening to Chris or I pontificate right now. Uh, at any rate, maybe you are, uh, I like, I, I particularly like control. Um, it does mean investment control. Um, right, whoever puts in the majority of the capital puts in uh, ha- usually has investment control. But uh, control meaning you can develop a business plan for the asset and actually execute on something. You know what I mean? Like I like the like what I was describing earlier. Maybe taking the rents from a thousand dollars to fifteen hundred dollars entails putting in washer and dryers, and you know renovating the kitchen and putting in new flooring. Yeah, well, you're right. also I, giving up a little. Maybe you're giving up a little bit of return under the guise that the people that are making the investments on behalf of the REIT have that in mind as well. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. I'm just inherently n- distrustful. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> was that was that like a no duh? Well, given the topic of the last several weeks, I think that's certainly <laughs> buy Bitcoin, buy gold, have four months worth of food and money in your safe. But no, no, everything's fine. It's like it's like Kevin Bacon at the end of Animal House right before he gets trampled. It's like remain calm, all is well. <laughs> yeah, I, I I hedge right, I hedge. So I like things that I can control in some way, me or whoever I'm partnering with. And uh, um, uh, and then everything else, I'm very conservative. 
Do you like buying real estate or buying businesses more? You know, that's a good question. Because the dynamics you just described about having a semblance of control, having a plan to not raise the rents from you know, 500 to 1,000, but let's say raise your profit or your EBITDA from 500 to 1,000. Yeah, that's, the dynamics are exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Uh, I, would say, I would say I like the deal in, any, in, in both cases, for sure. Uh, now, uh, you know, uh, uh, as much as I do, I don't, I don't love the continued operations. I, I'm, I'm one that likes to uh, work on something, execute on the business plan that I have for that thing, and then set it aside and move on to the next thing. I, I have serious ADD. I'm always looking at what's next. Well, and for those of you that don't know, that's Tim just described sort of the division of labor, I guess, between us. Tim handles a lot of the deal side, um, um, well, b- basically a lot of our financial transactions and in the real estate side of our business. And my main focus is on the actual operations. And it seems to complement each other well. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, is there a point, though, where unless you have a good partner, it's kind of like I kind of feel like you're always going to have the desire for one side, but the need to be good at the other. Does that make sense? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it's right. Uh, absent absent that, um, I think real estate's easier. Why? Just few, fewer people, stabler cash flows, uh, easier to value. Um, yeah, I mean less. Don't get me wrong. I, I love our people. And if any of our people are listening to this, they know that I love them. Um, it's uh, it's uh, it's challenging uh, leading people. It's challenging leading people. And in fact, I uh, I joke frequently with my team uh, that I'm not leading a business; I'm leading a cult, because I think that the way you lead people is 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 assembling a set of values and beliefs and purpose, uh, uh, and all of those things are 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 much more uh, dynamic and difficult to develop, rather than just you know a business plan for a for a, um, a real estate asset. It's pretty cut and dry. I'm going to do this to it, and then I'm going to sell it. And and you don't you don't have that same dynamic of having to get the culture just right because there is no there's no culture to a building. There is a culture to a company, and if you do it right, uh, you 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 have you have people that believe something together, and uh, that will that will work hard to support each other uh, for some end. Uh, uh, and usually that 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 end is for the the dominance of some shared belief, and so we talk about that a lot, um, you know, in our in our company. And I would say, if there's there's anything uh, within an organization that I'm uh, good at, I think it's that part of it. Um, but it's the 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 day to day maintenance of it's the management itself the day to day management uh, of you know monitoring numbers and statistics and consistency and meeting cadence and things of that sort that are really critical uh, to the success of an organization of any sort for that matter uh, that um, uh, I don't love because I'm always I'm always looking at how do I move on to the next thing? Why the organization itself is such a complex entity. Like you described, you got different personalities, different people, different culture, different teams within that organization. You know, the day to day of it is a lot. It's a lot more art than it is science, I guess is maybe a good way to, to put it. So there's a lot of nuance to it, which I I understand the, the appeal on the real estate side. I think, I think it's a lot of fun when, both the real estate and the operating company intersect because you do a lot of things like we're doing on the car wash side, which 
really, really opens up uh, do- doors in that sense. But here, here's kind of a, a weird question for you. You know, your 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 kids are older than mine, but you know, let, let's say one of your sons turns eighteen or twenty one, he comes to you and says, "Dad, what do I need to know about investing? What are the three things you tell him?" Markets are volatile. Uh, I already said one of them by by uh, money machines, not dreams of riches. Did I say that this time? Maybe that was last. I think show. I think you said it. I think you said it. Yeah, I think you buy money machines, not dreams of riches. Uh, and I, sometimes those money machines are hard to find. Um, I get three rules. What's the, what's the last one? Let's see. Educate yourself. Educate yourself constantly. Yeah, we, we actually, you and I talked about this earlier today. It's, you know, we, we have very different opinions on the ROI of college educations, but what we very much agree on is the ability that now more than any other time in history, you can figure anything out. You need to install a toilet in your house? Do you need to call a plumber? No, you call YouTube. You need to fix your sink? Call YouTube. You need, you need to put a new electrical outlet in? Do you call an electrician? No, you call YouTube. Mm-hmm. YouTube, first of all, take, I don't think people realize how big a, a hit YouTube has taken out of, out of the trades. And by the way, I don't know if you know this, do you know that YouTube on its own is the second largest search engine in the world? Is it really? Yeah. Like next to Google? Yeah. No, obviously Google owns YouTube, but if you just cut out YouTube on its own, YouTube is the second largest search engine in the world. Wow. That's wild. It it makes perfect sense though. But whether you're trying to do your first real estate deal, whatever it is you're doing, um, I think it's very important that the first stop for people is to make sure that that they have taken the steps to 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 ultimately um ultimately learn themselves because you're going to learn better if you have to go through that struggle of trying to learn things right well and i find i find when i go start uh wanting to teach myself about something i know that that it's time for me to get into action and and it can be a black hole really research can be a black hole but if you can stay focused on a topic that you want to learn about, I know it's time to start taking action when I get to the end of the available information and it sounds like people start repeating themselves. Uh, because that, that's when I know, okay, I've, I've, I've now gathered almost everything that can be commonly known about this one subject and going beyond this is, is sort of opinion or art. And that's when I need to start practicing my art. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no excuse for not trying to be able to, to teach yourself something right now. There's just too much information available. Now, that said, a lot of the information is, is sort of bad in some cases. But the more you see, the more you need to be able to filter it and, and make a determination for, for yourself. Right. And, yeah. and I, I liked the three things you pointed out there. There's one thing that, that I want if if my kids ever ask me that question I want to make sure they know is that the past is in no way predictive of the future so buy bitcoin so buy- <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding well no but I and I'm a guy that considers himself a value investor and I still do the same damn thing all the time someone talks about a stock to me I immediately pull up the chart and expand it to a month 6 months or a year and I think oh are we trading near highs? Are we trading near lows? And and that can be helpful if I'm looking at, let's say, Southwest, which was a stock that I was right about and feel like the smartest guy in the world about for now. Um, you know, if I want to see if something is trading against lows or whatever, but that's only good if I can determine what I think the value is in the future and determine if I'm priced at a discount now. That's all that's all that chart trading effectively does for me. I don't look at it and say, okay, well, we went into the last recession, or if you see recessions, they come out with this shape of the chart or whatever. It's, I, I don't think that's necessarily indicative of anything, but establishing a future value for something and getting it for a deal today is sort of a timeless look, I think. Yes. Yeah. And it's important to anchor to those things because then you would realize that I was wrong about my call on the S&P 500. 
Oh, that's I'm, the I'm officially wrong. I don't, I don't understand this, but I'm officially wrong. I thought that uh, in the absence of fundamentals, technicals would prevail and that we would hit the bottom of the 200-day moving average on the S&P 500, which was about 3,000, and then we'd retest the lows. And that didn't happen. But I think that's the problem with the market in general. And, and I think that's why understanding of valuation for where you invest is so important. Just in the sense that I don't think a lot of investors right now want to allow the market to go down. I think for some, you know, for the, for the majority of investors, they still remember 08 and 09. I think people are so afraid of that feeling that whether it's the government or whether it's our own behavior, we're going to subconsciously prop this thing up. And so you can't, you can't predict human emotion, and especially you can't predict emotion of groups of people. So it has to get back to, is, what is this company worth in the future? Is it on sale now? And even at that, you got to be willing to leave a little bit on the table just for the safety and security that that provides. And I, I think, you know, and maybe that's, that's another thing, you know, people make a, make a joke about, about Mr. Buffet always saying, you know, rule one, don't lose money. Rule two, see rule, uh, rule one. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's funny and catchy, but the point that he's making is security almost trumps returns in, in some respect. Yeah. Can I get a 25% turn and be return and be stressed out for a year? Or can I get myself a 15, 16% that I am totally comfortable is going to happen no matter what? Well, I'm going to take the no matter what <laughs> a million times out of a million. It's, to, to, to me, the lack of stress is effectively buying freedom. And I'll, I'll buy freedom all the time. Well, I think, you know, we're, we're, we keep hitting on this same theme of anchoring. And whether you're reading charts and te technicals, you're anchoring to some certain price point that says, here's when I'm right and here's when I'm wrong. And I think, and, and then same thing with fundamental valuation. It says, here's when I'm right and here's when I'm wrong. Uh, uh, you know, same thing with uh, the, you know, apartment example that we gave. It's... Uh, here's when here's when I'm right and what I'm what I'm and here's when I'm wrong. At each case, you've got this anchor to look to to say, this is what I think this thing is worth. The what are the things that would have to change to change my mind on that? And if you decide that beforehand, you've 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 sort of you've hedged against uh, your own emotions. Because so many times, uh, I don't know why this is. Maybe it's because money represents life's energy. But uh, you know, you can. It's easy to get emotional about investments and to not make decisions clearly. Um, I am particularly an emotional person, which is why I like uh, illiquid. Uh, uh, real estate investments and things of that sort because I can't get in and out of them super quick. <laughs> you know, I, I, I get plenty of time to calm down before I, I uh, pull the ripcord. Um, but nonetheless, I think, I think it's important to have those, those anchor points that, that tell you you're on the right track. Well, anchoring is a dangerous concept. You know, we've been, we, when I, I won't say names, but we've been looking at, at some businesses, uh, to purchase now and so, some of these folks either well for uh, the vast majority of them think that their business is worth exactly what it was pre-covid and right. they will well no you know in in the business we operate in we operate on a on a trailing 12-month basis and you buy a multiple of that well your trailing 12-month ebitda is dramatically lower your business is not worth the same or more as it was when we just went through a pandemic of unprecedented proportion. And mm -hmm. they just don't understand it. And part of it is because, you know, this pandemic is, you know, we're still only like two months into this. It's, you know, it's still recent enough that people, you know, remember what it felt like when they thought they were worth X and now they're worth 60% of X. And the problem is they don't know that because they've anchored themselves in their head. And, you know, the funny thing about these things is that, you know, emotion, always always takes a front seat to 
to logic and reason, and it takes a long time for that to catch up. And so, you know, we we may come out of COVID. Maybe you know, maybe we get a vaccine or whatever. But there is going to be a long tail on the impact of this, and it's probably going to take a long time for people to catch up and realize that their business is not going to be the same and is not going to be worth what they thought it was before. Right. Well, but in that scenario, uh, you know, those people have anchored to some valuation. And while that may not be real reality right now, uh, it could be reality in the future as long as they're in a position where they can continue to hold on to their assets. Sure. You know, that's, that's the question. And in my, in my, uh, um, in my gambling addiction, uh, I like to trade currencies and Bitcoin with very small amounts of money. Uh, and the, but the issue with trading currencies is you, you, you trade with such tremendous leverage that you can get, you can get a margin call, uh, and 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 that, and that the same issue applies to to even the private companies, albeit they're not leveraged as much as I am when I'm when I'm trading uh, currencies to try to scratch my gambler's itch. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, there's a possibility where I could be right on the end valuation of my position, but I might be wrong about its trajectory for how it gets there. Mm-hmm. And if I'm over leveraged or unable to maintain my position. For some reason, then I may never, I may, I may never get the benefit of being right. I can be right and be wrong. I can be right about the destination and wrong about the the route. How about that? Well, I, yeah, I think also given enough time, we're all, we're always going to be right about valuation. It's just a matter of maybe when. But I'm curious to know for a lot of businesses. You know that that had maybe valuation goals going in. How long does it take coming out of this before they realize, oh crap, we might be behind the eight ball? And is there going to be a lot of churn in ownership purely because you get a lot of businesses that, well, they might have had a value in mind and wanted to sell there. Suddenly, they're realizing that they're not worth nearly that, but they're also financially over a barrel and they have to sell. Right. Well, yeah, that could be the case as well. You know, and and then that's that's uh, um, it's an important consideration. Yeah, the ability to stick in a trade. Yep. All right, I think we've pontificated enough today. Okay, you think so? That was fun. It was. Yeah. It was. Uh, some life lessons there, courtesy of uh, Uncle Tim Barrett. <laughs> hey, you know, I'm happy to pontificate. There we go. All right. Well, any questions, comments, queries, drop us a line. Otherwise, wishing every one of you a great week, and we'll be sure to check in with you guys next week. See you guys.